So we've seen this really exponential increase in investment in clean energy manufacturing in the U.S. Over the past year, there's been $39 billion invested in new plant and equipment uh, in clean energy and transportation. That's up 135% year on year and up several thousand percent from five years ago. Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, I am pleased to welcome to the podcast friend of the program, Trevor Hauser. Trevor is a partner at the Rhodium Group, an independent research provider combining economic data and policy insight to analyze global trends. He joined my colleague, Allegra Dawes, today to discuss findings from the Clean Investment Monitor, Rhodium's database that has been tracking clean energy and transportation investments since 2018. Trevor and Allegra look at how clean investment in the United States has increased significantly following the passage of the IRA, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, and the Chips and Science Act. I'll turn it over now to Allegra to lead the discussion. Well, Trevor, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Um, maybe a good place to start would just be to, to kind of give us a little background on, on your work and, and what you've been seeing kind of in uh, the energy space here. Great. Uh, so my name is Trevor Hauser. I'm a partner at the Rhodium Group, and Rhodium's an independent research provider, uh, and I'm with the company's energy and climate practice. And uh, about half a year ago now, we set out uh, in partnership with uh, MIT to pull together a database of all clean energy and transportation investments in the U.S., going back to 2018 uh, to provide some empirical grounding uh, in assessing how what's happening to overall clean investment trends in the US and particularly how those trends are changing following the passage of three really large pieces of legislation over the past couple of years, the Inflation Reduction Act, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, and the Chips and Science Act. Awesome. Yeah, so maybe we'll kind of start with the the clean investment monitor. You mentioned you've been tracking kind of since 2018, um, and then obviously the past year and a half we've had this massive injection of of public funding and subsidies for this this space. Um, maybe just at the high level, what's kind of stood out to you, surprised you, um, you know, just kind of your high level takeaways when you're looking at that space over the past year and a half in particular. Yeah, well, so first, all the figures that I'm going to provide are uh, are estimates of actual investment. So not just, an, there have been a lot of announcements of projects. Uh, and what we try to do with the Clean Investment Monitor is, in addition to tracking those announcements, to quantify actual investment that's happening in the economy. So we track projects through their life cycle from when they're first announced to when they break ground uh, to when construction completes. And so if you look at actual investment occurring over the past year, so the 12 months following the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, there was $213 billion in clean investment in the U.S. economy. Uh, and that was up 37% year on year and up 165% relative to five years ago. Uh, and uh, that accounted for about 4.1% of all investment that happened in the U.S. economy during that period of time, uh, compared to five years ago, where clean energy was only 1.7% of total investment in the economy. 
Uh, now, the we'd like to think about, and you know, maybe we could use this as a, a way to structure this conversation. Uh, there's places where the investment trends that we're seeing were clearly catalyzed by recent legislation. So the trends that are occurring now would not be happening without that legislation. Uh, and then there's a category of technologies where it appears that the legislation is accelerating investment trends that were already happening. Uh, and then there's a third category where the incentives in those three pieces of legislation appear to be insufficient to overcome other headwinds uh, facing uh, facing that investment. Uh, and so we're happy to chat through those what we're seeing in each of those three categories. Yeah, I think that would be a great starting point. Like maybe if we start, you know, where is the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, um, having like the most impact in terms of kind of like catalyzing investment that wouldn't happen in, in the absence of, of these bills and this kind of money on the table? Yeah, so two areas. The first is manufacturing. Uh, so we've seen this really exponential increase in investment in clean energy manufacturing in the U.S. Over the past year, there's been $39 billion invested in new plant and equipment uh, in clean energy and transportation. That's up 135% year on year. And uh, several thousand percent from five years ago. Five years ago, there was almost no clean energy investment, like $2 billion a year in clean energy manufacturing in the US. Uh, and so that's really where we've seen the most exponential growth. Uh, most of that's happening in the EV supply chain. So that's everything from rare earth metals uh, to um, uh, electric, uh, uh, the materials that go into batteries, to battery module assembly, to uh, to, to EV vehicle assembly. Uh, so about 93% of all the investment in clean energy manufacturing we've seen in the U.S. is in the EV supply chain, uh, but also solar investment in solar. And it's not just uh, modules, but also cells and some ingots and wafers, uh, technologies that I think a lot of folks had given up hope would ever be manufactured in the U.S. Uh, that investment's up 131% year on year to uh, to $2 billion. And we have a lot more announcements in, um, in the pipeline. Uh, and uh, in that both the EV investment and the solar investment at that scale really would not be happening without some of the tax incentives and other uh, provisions of that legislation. Yeah, and maybe you know they they kind of both fit into the the box of a more um, industrial policy kind of orientation that I think the Biden administration has really pursued. You know, including kind of domestic content requirements that have been associated with some of the IRA funding. Um, and I think it it also fits into the kind of that geopolitical positioning of of waking up and kind of seeing China's dominant position there. Um, I wonder, like, if we look at the EV battery supply chain, you know, in your mind, how you're seeing kind of investments split between, you know, kind of the upstream of the manufacturing, you know, the critical minerals, the uh, the materials that go into some of these components um, versus kind of like the big flashy battery announcements that I think have been more prevalent in the U.S. to date. Um, and maybe like how, you know, some of these investment decisions differ at different stages of, of the value chain for, for EVs in particular. Yeah, so by dollars, most of the investment has been in battery cell and module manufacturing and then final vehicle 
assembly. Um, there is a, a large amount of investment happening in um, uh, in EAM and in rare earth metals, so that uh, more upstream parts of that value chain. Uh, but a lot of those projects are slower to come online, big, complicated mining and refining projects. Uh, and so that's still a place where there's more import dependency in the EV supply chain than farther downstream uh, in the actual battery uh, cell and module assembly and then the final vehicle assembly uh, where we've seen the most investment activity by dollars occurring. Yeah. And then I wonder just like in terms of kind of the political goal, it's, you know, kind of the focus has shifted to, to diversifying supply chains. And I think, you know, there's kind of a growing awareness that while the IRA has a lot of funding for domestic production, there needs to be kind of um, more capacity for building supply chains that are resilient and include kind of more partners. Um, have you kind of noticed any trends of like U.S. companies that are looking kind of very actively at some of this domestic supply, but also pairing it with you know, kind of this friend shoring, near shoring uh, shift as well. Yeah, so we're not comprehensively tracking right now um, investment in these supply chains in other countries. Uh, anecdotally, there's a lot of interest by. Uh, companies in the EV supply chain that are looking to ultimately sell into the US or European markets and ensuring that they have diversified upstream suppliers so that they're not as uh, as concentrated in their uh, in their supply chain in China as they've been in the past. Uh, but uh, that's mostly just anecdotal at this point. We don't have any comprehensive data on it. Yeah. Awesome. Um, and then so we have that first bucket of kind of where is investment going, where it wouldn't necessarily have been kind of directed prior to, to the IRA. Um, and one other also, big thing in that bucket, just before we move on, so the oh, other, yeah. lar other large category is emerging climate technologies. So carbon management, clean hydrogen, sustainable aviation fuel. So the past two years in those three categories, there's been $80 billion in announced investment. Um, and that's an increase from just 7.5 billion during the preceding two-year period. So almost a third of all of the announced investment over the past couple of years in large-scale energy infrastructure has been in these emerging climate technologies. Um, now, only 3.5 billion of that 80 billion has actually of announcements has actually occurred. These are big complex projects take a while to uh, uh, to break ground. Uh, but that's another area where without the incentives in the IRA and the IIJA, we would not be seeing nearly that much activity in carbon management and clean hydrogen and sustainable aviation fuels. Awesome. And maybe we'll kind of turn back to, to some of the emerging technologies as well. But in terms of kind of like accelerating trends that have already been in the market, um, where have you kind of seen the pickup in investment? What are some of the trends and kind of patterns that you've noticed there? Yeah. So the two biggest are in solar and storage, which often are co-invested together. Uh, storage is a complement to the variable nature of solar generation. So solar and storage were already taking off in the US due to the decline in the price of uh, solar PV and lithium ion batteries, uh, and the incentives in the IRA and IJA have accelerated that trend. So investment last year was up 39% uh, year on year to $44 billion in solar and storage combined. Uh, 
And if you look at the projects that new announcements last year, it was $100 billion of new projects that were announced. And that was double the announcements from the year before. So the pace is really accelerating in uh, solar and storage. Um, and then the other would be electric vehicles, where that takeoff was already occurring. And the incentives in the IRA in particular uh, are accelerating uh, growth in EVs. Uh, so year to date, uh, electric vehicle sales are up 46% year on year. Uh, uh, and it's trending higher than most expectations were before the uh, right before the uh, IRA and IAJ were adopted. Yeah, and then one thing I was kind of taking a look at the the clean investment monitor, and you know you kind of break it into the retail investment as well. Um, how significant do you think some of the incentives for like you know consumers and and businesses to kind of adopt some of these technologies have been and and I often think it's a little bit underplayed in some of the discussion but how do you see that playing in especially kind of like EVs as the accelerating kind of there yeah, the EV incentives for adoption, uh, the $7,500, the expansion of the $7,500 tax credit um, is is pretty meaningful in terms of its effect on EV sales and EV uh, and overall EV demand. Uh, and then the investment tax credit for rooftop solar and storage systems uh, also plays a pretty significant role. Now, for rooftop solar and storage, the tax credits in some states are secondary to local net metering policy in terms of what shapes overall level deployment, but they're still a pretty large driver. Awesome. And then, you know, we have our final bucket where maybe the story is slightly less rosy. You know, where are we still seeing hurdles and maybe it's cost challenges, maybe it's technology development rates, um, but where is like the IRA and some of these other funding bills kind of like falling short of the goal of accelerating deployment or development? Yeah, so two I'd highlight. Um, the first and probably most concerning is wind, uh, where uh, wind investment in the U.S. is down 36% year-on-year and down 53% over the past two years, uh, despite the expansion of, uh, of tax credits in the IRA. And that's primarily because of high interest rates, uh, which hurt. So high interest rates hurt clean energy economics generally, but they're particularly tough for wind projects because of the longer timeline to completion of a wind project versus a utility scale solar project. So that whole period of time that you're under construction, you're carrying construction finance to cover the cost of the equipment. You're not generating any revenue because you're not producing yet. And so, uh, you know, three to 4% increase in your interest rates can really uh, challenge the economics of the project. And We've seen that particularly in the offshore wind market with some of the recent uh, project cancellations or attempts to renegotiate power purchase agreements. Wind is also more vulnerable to challenges in interconnection and in siting and permitting transmission in the US than solar is. So it's facing both of those headwinds and the incentives in the IRA and the IIJA have not yet been sufficient to overcome those, um, those broader headwinds. Uh, another is, and this is kind of a half good, half bad story, is heat pumps. So heat pumps shipments are down 10% year to date, uh, despite having a $2,000 tax credit in the IRA for the purchase and installation of heat pumps. Um, so that's the bad news. Uh, that is driven also primarily by interest rates. So overall residential construction is down about 15% year on year so far this year. 
and so as fewer people are renovating their homes, fewer people are building new homes, there's less opportunity for heat pump shipments. Now, the good news is that heat pumps continue to grow in their market share. So if you look at just standalone AC units, they're down 15% year on year. And gas and oil furnace shipments are down 25% year on year. So heat pumps are holding up better in an overall down market uh, than uh, than furnaces uh, and uh, standalone ACs are. Uh, but high interest rates and slow residential construction is definitely impeding the pace of turnover of that uh, capital stock and replacement with high efficiency electrified options. Yeah. So if we if we look at wind, you know, obviously kind of some of the macroeconomic conditions make it much harder to build these big expensive projects. Um, but I think like offshore wind, like often the developers have often pointed to kind of a really undeveloped supply chain uh, in the U.S. Um, and kind of bottlenecks on on manufacturing capacity and the ability to deliver there. Um, we've heard the kind of positive story on the manufacturing side of you know actually seeing shifts and in, in investment and in where it could go. Um, I wonder kind of like, do you see, you know, any differences kind of when thinking about building out some of the offshore wind and supply chain there and, and why it, the manufacturing capacity story has been harder to pick up on, on that side? Yeah. So the, it's a little bit of a chicken and egg with the manufacturing and the installation. So a lot of the projects in New York, for example, uh, the offshore wind RFPs as part of those bids, the, project developers are pledging to build assembly and manufacturing capacity in New York, right? Um, but it's conditional on winning those bids. Uh, and then you have a concentration in wind manufacturing. I mean, there's basically three large companies that service the US and European markets, um, Siemens, Vestas, and, uh, and uh, GE, and, uh, and they have backlogged orders and, um, and challenges in expanding their supply to meet that. So for the onshore wind market, uh, the, the manufacturers are having you know, challenges keeping up with demand, and then projects are getting delayed. And then the offshore wind, um, the so much of the manufacturing really ends up being customized to the particular offshore wind project, like the tower and foundation assembly. It has to be done pretty close to where the offshore wind project is going to be. And the overall uncertainty about the financing of those projects also chills the investment in the manufacturing to supply them directly, uh, as opposed to solar investment or battery investment, where there's much more confidence that the market is growing. And so you have more willingness by investors to make speculative investments on production capacity, um, uh, assuming that there will be gro continued growth in the market for it to occur. Yeah. I guess it, it's also kind of part of that story where you know, solar has seen that really substantial kind of cost decline and and it's a technology that we kind of know how to do and, and how to do it pretty well. Um, and I guess that's one of like the big fears when we're looking at kind of this industrial policy effort and kind of the, the build American and, and kind of develop a manufacturing base uh, to support deployment. Um, I wonder kind of your view on, on some of these like cost increases that could um, come through and like kind of the ability to manage both ambitious goals on deployment that are in the IRA, 
um, with pretty ambitious goals on kind of domestic supply and and uh, construction of these projects. Yeah, I think that the so in general the globally the pace of deployment that we need to get to our climate goals is really dramatic, and we need as much production capacity of this technology as we can possibly get and as many different countries as we can get it around the world, right? Like the pie is growing so fast. I think there's a lot of concern often with um, industrial policy and incentives for manufacturing that what you're doing is you're setting up a battle, a subsidy war between countries and between producers for a fixed pie of product. Right. And so you get a race to the bottom of who can out subsidize each other the quickest. And I think what's slightly different about the clean energy transition is that the scale of the market is growing so fast and the amount of new manufacturing capacity that we're going to need globally is so large that uh, that that the pie is really is expanding as quickly as that. Um, is that domestic production is, and what we really want to be careful of, like you were talking about with wind, is that the lack of of production capacity in general, not just domestic production capacity, but global production capacity, is not a constraint on deployment because I think that's a very real, uh, very real risk. And uh, and so, in addition to the supply chain diversification benefits and resilience benefits of having uh, solar investment in the U.S., battery investment in the U.S. It's also just helping overcome global supply chain barriers and capacity barriers that we need to get the pace of global deployment uh, that uh, that's required to meet our climate goals. Yeah, I think like especially like, you know, Europe kind of had a lot of those fears expressed over losing out on some of the business opportunities in terms of like not being able to match the subsidies. But it does seem to have kind of shifted over to a, a more, you know, net positive gain for, I think, kind of global climate ambition. Um, and you think about, you know, often people will point out, they forget, like he'll point out, well, China accounts for 80 percent of global battery and EV manufacturing. That's true. China is also 70, 80% of all EV sales. Like the vast majority of the Chinese solar and EV industry is serving a domestic market. That market is growing very quickly. And uh, uh, and so it really isn't right now a battle over a fixed pie. Uh, it is a race for countries to be able to bring on enough capacity and at a low enough cost to keep the clean energy transition moving apace. Yeah. And that's especially for those technologies that you kind of mentioned, you know, the IRA accelerated trends that were already there. But if we're like thinking of some of those emerging technologies that you mentioned, you know, clean hydrogen um, and direct air capture, kind of carbon storage, um, the story is kind of different because, you know, we're we're trying to like, you know, move the technology along kind of the development and cost curve enough that it actually becomes kind of competitive in a few years time. Um, when we need to start deploying it quickly. Um, how do you kind of see the U.S.'s approach to those segments, maybe in comparison to kind of in Europe or, or other kind of areas that they're also approaching these technologies? And, and what do you think the strengths are of the U.S. approach or like where it could need some additional like support policy or, or investment? Yeah, so I'd say on carbon management, the U.S. really is currently in a leader, leadership position globally. Um, so whether that's 
carbon capture uh, from a, a flu stack, point source carbon capture, or uh, direct air capture. Uh, most of the R&D is happening in the US. Most of the deployment is happening in the US. And most of the, uh, we have a lot of expertise in the types of geological skill sets you need to be good at geologic sequestration um, because of the relatively robust oil and gas industry in the U.S. And so I think that that is a place, carbon management is a place where the U.S. will likely continue to uh, push the technology frontier globally. In clean hydrogen, uh, I think it, the U.S. is likely to be the center of investment on the blue hydrogen side or turquoise hydrogen uh, because of relatively low-cost natural gas. Uh, on the green hydrogen side, I think the question is mostly around uh, the supply and availability of low-cost renewable energy. That's going to be the main constraint is, is there enough low-cost renewable capacity that at the same time as we're trying to electrify transportation and decarbonize existing power generation, uh, is there enough low-cost renewable electricity to really scale a green hydrogen industry that doesn't cannibalize clean energy from those other sources where we uh, clean electricity from those other sources that we need it? Now, compared to Europe, the U.S. is in a relatively good place in terms of the resource uh, that we have both solar and wind, uh, but we also have a permitting system that is really slowing down the pace at which we build out that uh, and get that low-cost renewable uh, electricity uh, to market. Uh, for sustainable aviation fuels, there's a lot of really interesting activity happening in the U.S. right now. There's quite a bit of demand uh, among the airlines right now for procurement of sustainable aviation fuels, even at a meaningful premium uh, over, the, uh, over the cost of traditional jet fuel. Uh, and you have a number of different companies in the U.S. investing in different types of technology pathways. And, uh, and that'll be a really interesting space to watch and to see if uh, new innovation coming out of those uh, plants ends up putting the U.S. In a, in a leadership position on sustainable aviation fuels as well. Yeah. And then I guess like when we're, we're thinking of kind of the the IRA, the IIJA, uh, you know, we're kind of, I think, approaching a, a dicey kind of political environment in the U.S. where, you know, we might kind of see a shift in how much support there are for some of these big spending policies. Um I wonder when you're kind of thinking of the resilience of some of these like carrots that are incentivizing, you know, the investment announcements and the actual investments, um, what, what's your kind of takeaway in terms of resilience to kind of political change um, and maybe like how companies are also approaching that landscape with the potential kind of shifts in the way that the federal government approaches uh, energy policy and, and manufacturing kind of a policy as well? Yeah, so one thing that's interesting when we look through these data is that the investment is pretty broadly spread geographically, and there's quite a bit of clean energy investment incentivized by this legislation in uh, Republican districts and Republican states, not just in Democratic districts and Democratic states. You know, indeed, the majority of the investment in clean energy manufacturing and in um, and in wholesale 
clean energy generation that we've seen over the past couple of years. The majority of it is going into states that are currently Republican controlled. And uh, and so and that's turning into real steel in the ground and jobs being created. And, uh, you know, in theory, that should translate into uh, a if not explicit bipartisan support, a hesitancy among uh, among elected officials that have IRA incentivized investments, creating thousands of jobs in their districts or states to um, to remove those incentives. But a key question will be how vocal are the companies and uh, employees of those facilities in the political process, uh, and uh, and is that and how much is that? Uh, kind of home state or home district economic interest able to prevail relative to national partisanized politics. And uh, uh, and that'll be the real test over the next couple of years uh, because the investment's actually occurring. Uh, it's occurring pretty quickly. It's creating a lot of jobs. Uh, and so now we just have to see whether that actually translates into, uh, into political support for those policies. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, Trevor, we've kind of touched on, you know, a lot of what we've been seeing and, and a lot of what the clean investment monitor is kind of like tracking as well. Um, I wonder just kind of, you know, we've seen the IRA in action for about a year and a half now. When you're thinking of, you know, the midterm, you know, the next two years, the next five years, what are kind of the the key metrics or, or changes that you're kind of keeping an eye on to see, you know, if this policy is working? Like, is this going to achieve kind of the energy transition goals uh, that that we have and and address it at a scale at, at the speed that is as required? Uh, yeah, great question. So a couple of things that I'm keeping my eyes on. One is, uh, is this current set of headwinds for wind power, are they going to abate? Uh, can we, we need a lot of, we can't decarbonize the U.S. grid exclusively on solar and storage. Uh, we need a lot of wind power, particularly in uh, in New England, in the Pacific Northwest, where the solar resource isn't as good, but where there's really high quality offshore wind. A lot of that will depend on what happens with interest rates, uh, which is not something that um, legislators can control, uh, but it also will uh, hinge on permitting policy and just overall uh, public acceptance and support for the pace at which those projects need to get built. So that's something that that we're paying pretty close attention to. Uh, another is, you know, EVs are at a really tenuous moment in the S curve of deployment in the US, right? We've we burned through most of the kind of early adopters that were going to buy an EV no matter what. And now the auto companies really are having to transition into selling into the bulk of the market. And uh, uh, the technology progress has been really impressive. The costs are coming down a lot. There remains you know, reasonably high degrees of consumer anxiety about range and charging. And uh, and so whether both the combination of uh, charging infrastructure and work by the auto companies to develop the range of makes and models that people want um, is able to overcome that uh, over the next couple of years will be pretty decisive in terms of shaping what happens with the EV transition over the next decade. So that's another one that we're watching closely. Um, and uh, and then the, on the emerging climate technology front, there's a huge amount of announced activity 
These are really big projects. They have the potential to pretty fundamentally transform that technology landscape and put the U.S. in a leadership position, uh, but it's still very much early days. And so do those projects break ground? Uh, do they proceed on schedule? And are they able to prove out and reduce the cost of those earlier technologies in a way that allows for much broader uh, broader deployment? So those are three trends that we're, uh, that we're paying close attention to that, that in combination will be pretty uh, pivotal in determining whether the U.S. is able to hit its emission reduction goals in 2030 and beyond. Awesome. Um, well, I think we've covered quite a bit. Um, is there any kind of other topic that we've missed on or anything that you kind of think would be important to include here? I think we pretty much covered it. Thanks. Awesome. Sounds good. Thanks to Trevor for joining us this week. There's a link in our show notes to the Clean Investment Monitor. It's a great resource for detailed data, including breakdowns of all the investment trends discussed today. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find us at CSIS.org and follow us on social media for the latest updates from our team. As always, thanks for listening. 